Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Another edition of Online Only Church. Um, I have to preach to an empty room here and just imagining someday you will see this via the internet. Uh, weird dynamic, but whatever. We just got to do the best we can with what we've been given here. So today I just want to continue actually um, on the same theme that I was uh, preaching with last time, which is that there's some weeds that need to be whacked within Christianity. So Jesus refers in a parable that, you know, sometimes within the kingdom of God, the enemy will come and plant weeds. Weeds, um, you know, amidst the wheat, amidst the good stuff. And it can look near indiscernible. It can look like the same thing until it finally matures. And uh, the problem is like these weeds, you know, they're like, uh, like they're poisonous, they're mind, they're mind altering. And uh, Jesus is basically teaching that this is going to happen in the kingdom of God. People are going to try to plant things that aren't of him. They're, they're not godly. They're not of the, the kingdom culture that Jesus is trying to bring. And we have to watch out for this kind of stuff. You know, there's all sorts of false thoughts and false teachings that get planted in the church. You know, we gotta we gotta get out our, our whippersnippers and, and and whack those weeds from from time to time, and you know especially if you're new in the faith, uh, these weeds can really mess with you. These false thoughts, uh, you really need a good grasp on theology to to know what's you know what's of of the truth and what's not, and you know this is a it's a big big problem in Christianity. In fact, 22 out of 27 of the New Testament books uh, talk about false teaching. So it's a big deal. So this, uh, you know, this last time I preached, I preached on of how uh, this modern movement of social justice is kind of getting into the church a bit and how, you know, social justice and, and biblical justice are, are different. You can't easily join the two together. Uh, today, I want to specifically look at some of the criticisms that are launched at Christianity uh, from the outside looking in that over time, you know, some people even within Christianity, at least in their minds, they're within it. They've adopted some of these criticisms and essentially just went and completely skewed Christianity. And, uh, and how they do this often is by completely misrepresenting and mischaracterizing God. And probably the main focus on uh, some of these biblical critiques would actually often be the Old Testament. And, you know, these critiques on the Old Testament, really the Bible in general, they've been around for a long time, since the beginning of Christianity, really. And uh, one of the most common ones, the one I'm going to be looking at the most today, is the question, if God is so loving, why? And then kind of looking at some of these Old Testament stories and how people can like, completely take them out of the context and skew them and try to make God look bad and ultimately try to discredit Scripture or throw the Old Testament out completely. And uh, oftentimes people will describe, you know, this God of the New Testament, you know, Jesus, he's so nice and loving and easy to follow. But the God of the Old Testament, he's like petty and demanding and, and wrathful. He's like this maniac. And again, this is just a critique that people have and a technique they use is to make God look, you know, make him look bad. And again, it's just complete mischaracterization, um, very bad biblical interpretation. I'm kind of going to look at that today. And it relies on people uh, not knowing the Bible enough for, you know, for this theory to propagate, essentially. And interestingly enough, um, you know, this has been going on for a long time. In early Christianity, there was a group called the Gnostics. And uh, the word Gnostic kind of refers to the word knowing. And their name essentially means that they were in the know. And they believed that they really understood, you know, what was what and 
and uh, you know they they would use scripture to support these really strange ideas. They believed themselves to be super enlightened, and um, you know they they had radical moves away from scripture, like saying stuff like you know sin isn't the problem; it's our lack of knowledge. And they would say stuff like the God of the Old Testament is a completely different God than the God of the New Testament. Uh, one of the the early church um, writers, his name is Irenaeus. I might have just butchered that name, but whatever. Uh, Irenaeus, that's probably correct. Irenaeus, he, he, he addressed this heresy in 180 AD. This is what he said. Evil interpreters of the word who overthrow the faith of many by drawing them away under the pretense of superior knowledge as if they had something more sublime to reveal than that of God who created the heavens and the earth. They cunningly allure the simple-minded into their system and these simple ones are unable to distinguish falsehood from truth. Their errors are craftily decked out in an attractive dress so that it appears to the inexperienced more true than the truth itself. So you can trace all sorts of challenges to the faith, you know, throughout history and how they just keep coming up again, even though people, you know, uh, hundreds of years, even thousands of years ago, completely uh, dealt with these critiques and gave, you know, the answers towards them. And, but again, they just keep coming back and no joke, like within the movement of progressive Christianity, which is around today, uh, one of the, the main leading voices of it, um, and this progressive Christianity is supposedly more enlightened, a lot like this Gnostic, uh, group back in the day. But anyways, this leader of it, he basically says, you know what? The actions of the God of the Old Testament are basically just a bunch of crimes, so he just throws out the Old Testament just like that. And he would actually advocate that we would use our own version of right and wrong to uh, interpret the Bible. And here's another quote from a modern-day Gnostic, a pro progressive Christian. It says this, I cannot serve a God that I am more moral than. <laughs> this is a grievous error. Like, this is ridiculous. To be able to say that you know more about morality or ethics than God himself, it's, that's disgusting. To say you know more about Christianity than the disciples that literally walked and talked with Jesus. To know more about who God is than Moses, who hung out with God, or Abraham. Like, it's, it's wild. Honestly, to be rude a little bit, it's sheer idiocy. So, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to defend uh, the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to look at that, kind of that theme of God is so loving, why? And some of the, the often critiqued stories we're going to look at today. I'm going to add some context to them and defend them so you can understand what's going on and, and show that God is so loving and patient and he's amazing and incredible all throughout the Bible. And then at the end, I'm just going to give you some kind of some tips of how you can uh, interpret the Old Testament, how you work your way through some of the more difficult to understand passages of Scripture. So first, I just want to drop a few atom bombs on this this critique uh, this critique of the Old Testament, or the you know the, the God of the Old Testament, is different than than Jesus. So first of all, I just want to say, how does Jesus talk about the Old Testament? He's God Himself. Maybe we should listen to what He has to say. Let's go to Matthew five seventeen through eighteen. It says this: Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. See, ultimately, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
everything in it is actually kind of pointing towards him. It's one step along the journey pointing towards him. It's all about God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. And you know, he would preach from it all the time. He would use it in his messages, quote it continually. Um, he would explicitly refer to it as scripture and, and you know, that it's coming from God. And his disciples, his followers that wrote the rest of the New Testament did the same thing. So if it's good enough for Jesus, if it's good enough for the disciples, it should be good enough for us. More than good enough, honestly. And as this verse is, is declaring, you know, God, he makes sure that what, what he wants in the Bible, what he wants in the word, and in this case, he's referring to the Old Testament, what he wants to be there is there. He, you know, he's an all-powerful God. He, he made sure that his text, his holy scriptures are accurate. So we can have confidence knowing that when we're reading this, this is what God wanted us to read. It is the inspired word of God. And then kind of my second big bomb here to destroy this theory would just be to look at this infographic that shows that there's literally hundreds of thousands of biblical connections between the Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible is continually quoting itself and referencing back uh, throughout history. Yeah, to the point that there's, yeah, there's hundreds and thousands of connections and so many themes that all just are beautifully interwoven throughout the entire story. Honestly, when you look at this, the Bible is just absolutely incredible. It is totally divine because there's no book like it in all of human history. It's, it's amazing. So yes, th this argument uh, that the Old Testament isn't scripture, yes, it's completely ridiculous. Jesus affirmed it. He affirmed the Old Testament. And as we can see with that infographic, it is inextricably, inextricably linked to the New Testament. You can't just cut it up and take out two-thirds of the Bible and still call yourself a Christian. So for the rest of this sermon, I actually just want to walk through some of these Old Testament stories, as I was mentioning, some of the foundational stories, some of the ones that are critiqued by people and say, how is this moral? And again, I'm just going to give you some tools as we go through to understand the Bible. And you're going to see that same loving, amazing, patient God, and also a God of justice. So let's start at the beginning of the story. In Genesis, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, they live in paradise. It's this beautiful spot where they get to walk and talk with God and live in complete unity with him and with each other. But of course, they rebel from God. They mess it up. And, uh, you know, this brings this corruption into the world and messes up all of creation. And it doesn't take long for, you know, the world to just get really, really messy. Like literally, uh, you know, the first kid born kills the second kid that was born. Uh, Cain kills his brother Abel. And then you just fast forward just a few generations and the earth is just a complete mess. It's not good for humans to be apart from God. Genesis 5, this would be the intro towards the story of Noah and the ark. Genesis 5 verse 5 says this, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought of or imagined was constantly and totally evil. Now that's really hard for us to fathom. Now that extreme level of wickedness. If you just take for a moment and just think of, you know, some of the grotesque debauchery that humans uh, can take part of, and now imagine that happening continually with every thought. Like, that's mind-blowing. This is a bad, bad situation. So God, he's able to find just one person that's still, you know, willing to walk with him. And it's going to walk towards goodness. And God uh, comes alongside Noah and he gives him this plan. And he actually spends hundreds of years trying to convince the people around him 
that you need to turn after God. You need to turn away from your wicked ways and warns that there's a flood coming. But only Noah's family listened. Other, everybody else, their hearts were too hard. They didn't want to turn back to God. And so that, and, you know, in order to save the human race, the human race and the future of, of creation, God has to flood the earth and essentially, you know, reboot everything. And then this begins this salvation plan to restore us to this, uh, what God's ideal is, his plan for life, to live in paradise in complete unity with him and with each other. So first of all, you know, people ask, why would a loving God just kill all those people? Again, as I was saying, it's, you know, the future of humanity is at stake here. Think of it, if only one family is walking with God and the rest of humanity isn't, that does not bode well for the triumph of good over evil. If God allows evil to go unchecked, it's going to wipe out all of the good. So God had to make a stand there for the sake of all of us, for the sake of all of creation. Not an easy thing to do. So after the, sto the story of Noah, you know, a few generations go by again, and God once again finds someone that's willing to walk with him, someone he can work with. And again, begin this process and continue this process of bringing people back to this ideal of, of paradise with him, complete unity with him, restoring that connection that we've lost with God. That person is Abraham. Uh, originally, he's called Abram, and then God later changes his name. So we're just going to read one of the uh, first passages of scripture about Abraham here. Uh, this is in uh, Genesis chapter 12. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So that's God's mission statement he's saying right there. It's my desire to bless everyone on earth, and he's going to do it through Abraham and his family, um, which later is going to form into a nation. So, you know, soon after we get introduced to Abraham, we're going to see that there's, you know, similar to the story of Noah, there's extreme circumstances at time, at certain times, where people are actually beyond reaching. They've rejected God. They are so corrupt, so evil, that God can't let that continue. Because, again, evil, you know, it's contagious. It, it spreads, and sometimes God essentially needs to kind of quarantine it and get rid of it uh, just for the sake of the rest of humanity. You know, if that evil is allowed to persist, it can wipe out all the good and, it, you know, it would mess up God's salvation plan. So we see this happen in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So two extremely evil cities that God had to destroy. So we see this in Genesis 18, verse 20 here. It says, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. So again, we're seeing such pervasive wickedness in humanity. Like we can't even fathom what was really even completely going on there. But, you know, so many people around these cities are crying out for help and saying, God, if you're out there, please do something because these evil people are doing all sorts of terrible things. They're hurting people. And, you know, God heard these prayers and he knew he had to do something about it to save the people that were actually, you know, willing to turn to good willing you know to take part in his salvation plan and so again for the sake of creation for the sake of saving all of humanity for the sake of you know good being able to triumph over evil at a very critical early stage of humanity god sends his angels to destroy sodom and gomorrah 
In Genesis 19, the angels state why these cities are being destroyed. Verse 13 says, We are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. Again, people were desperate and crying out to God, please do something about these evil people. And so and he, and he, and he had to. See, what's going on in this story is it's actually the wrath of God in action. Now, some critics of Christianity, you know, they when they think of God's wrath, you know, they describe him as, you know, like flying off the handle and being out of control and, and that he's very petty simply because people aren't following his really strict rules or something. And as you're seeing in this story, that's not at all the case. God's wrath is actually a very beautiful thing. It is a very good thing and a needed thing. It's an act of love and protection when he's coming against evil that is literally threatening to destroy humanity, that, that is hurting his children and, and threatening you know, his plan of salvation for everybody. Let me read you a quote from a Croatian theologian, Miroslav Volf. So he was born in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, for those of you who are, uh, I guess, my age and older, you're probably um, aware of what went on in that nation in the early 1990s. It was torn apart by all sorts of warring, you know, ethnic and religious factions. And, you know, some of the terrible, evil atrocities of humanity took part during this time, uh, such as genocide was going on. And, um, you know, Miroslav, he, he was there when this was going on. This was his nation. And when he saw sin manifest like that, when he saw that humanity was capable of that kind of evil, he finally understood, you know, the need for the wrath of God. Here is his quote. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. And that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I cannot imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. That's a powerful statement from someone that has seen humanity at its absolute worst. Also worth mentioning in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that God said that he wouldn't destroy these cities if he could find even 10 righteous people within them. And he had forewarned Abraham's extended family and told them to get out of there. And there's all sorts of biblical precedents that shows whenever there's, you know, an act of judgment that has to happen, God will give all sorts of forewarning. He will give all sorts of, you know, time and, and, and chances for people to turn to him and repent of their wicked ways before he has to take this drastic action. And obviously, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah just have completely ignored God. They were too hard-hearted. 
They weren't going to turn away from their destructive ways, and so God's hand was forced. To continue on with Abraham's story to another often criticized uh, aspect of Scripture. See, God had promised that through Abraham, he was going to bless all the nations. You know, he was going to build a nation out of his descendants. But the problem was Abraham and his wife Sarah were unable to have any children. But God miraculously, you know, fixed that situation and he brought life to Sarah's womb and they had a son named Isaac. And this began that plan of salvation, that plan of, you know, building this nation that's going to bless all the world. But in this really strange turn of events, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, this promised child, and I want you to take him to the Mount of Moriah. And he's going to be a sacrifice to me. Now this is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God is into human sacrifice? So here's what's up here. God is actually testing Abraham. And ultimately he's foreshadowing his ultimate salvation plan. Because God's own son, Jesus, thousands of years later, would go to that same mountain, the Mount of Moriah, which actually means the Mount of Provision, and he would die for our sins. He would be the sacrifice that makes everything right with God. And ultimately, as Abraham is going through this process, he actually knows that God can't lie. He knows that God is just. And he knows that Isaac is going to be fine no matter what because of what the Lord has declared. He even tells others on the way up there that, you know, both me and Isaac are going to go up this mountain. We're going to worship God. And he's going to provide a sacrifice. And we're both coming back. And then, you know, that's exactly what happened. God provided a sacrifice. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 kind of gives more context on this story of Abraham. It says this, It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. See, ultimately, the story of Abraham is showing his amazing faith. He trusted God with his past, and he just up and left where he had came from and you know, went on this journey to this new land. And then God also asked him, will you trust me with your future? And then this promise, this promised child, and Abraham showed he was willing to trust God with his future as well. And so this is why he's called the father of the faith. So we fast forward a few generations. You know, Abraham's family has grown and it has constituted itself into a nation. Um, but unfortunately, they were taken, slave, taken as slaves in Egypt and remained as so for over 400 years. But God comes and he rescues Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel from Egypt. And he does this by thoroughly embarrassing the Egyptians and their fake gods. And he shows that, you know, he is the only God, that they should be worshiping him. He shows, you know, plain as day that he's the real deal. He's the one that should be followed. And, you know, that all these other paths lead to destruction. All these other gods are fake. See, the Pharaoh of Egypt, essentially, is like the king of Egypt. He was worshipped as, essentially, he was the son of God in their culture. He's the son of their main god, Ra, who is the god of the sun. The sun in the sky. And anyways, this Pharaoh, he would not allow Abraham's people, the Israelites, to leave Egypt. He wanted to keep them as slaves. And so God, again, had to take some drastic action. 
And so he sent various plagues to Egypt and in order to get them to release God's people. So what's going on here is actually like spiritual warfare. And God is showing the Israelites and the Egyptians, he's the real deal. He's the only God that exists. You know, he's the one we should be following. And these plagues that he sends, the 10 different plagues, what they're, they're doing is they're kind of showing that he controls nature. And why that's important is because many false gods in many different cultures are often tied into various aspects of nature. And actually, all the 10 different plagues that God sends there can actually easily be tied to a specific god um, that Egypt was worshipping, a false god that they were worshipping. Just for a couple examples here, uh, the Egyptian god of the Nile River, Happy. Um, you know, God sent this plague that turned the water into blood, essentially showing that, you know, their god of the Nile River is completely useless. Then there's another one, Hecate. Uh, this is a goddess that basically looks like a humanoid frog. And again, God sends this plague of frogs, which shows that that god is completely, utterly powerless. Then we have Kepri, and this is a god that has the head of a fly. I don't know if you've ever seen like Egyptian uh, art or whatever movies. You often see like these mixtures of animals and humans, weird thing. But anyways, yeah, there's a god that they worship that had the head of a fly. And any, anyways, God sends a plague that's a swarm of flies. Again, showing, you know, this God that you're worshiping, useless, false, doesn't exist. And then uh, then there's also Ra, you know, the God of the sun. And one of the plagues God sends, the ninth one, is that there's darkness for three days. So he's completely showing, yeah, even your, you know, your most revered God, completely useless and powerless to stand up against me. And then, uh, you know, finally, the tenth plague, this actually kind of mostly goes against Pharaoh and kind of Ra as well. So this last plague, and the one people often have an issue with here, is that the firstborn children in Egypt die one night. And again, whoa, what's going on here? Is God killing kids? How could a loving God kill kids? So there's a lot going on here. Let's break it down. So first of all, this mirrors of how when Moses was a baby, Pharaoh ordered that all the male Israelites... All these little babies needed to be killed. And of course, Moses escaped that. Also, again, there's that spiritual warfare dynamic that's going on. So the death of Pharaoh's firstborn was essentially would be that's the death of the next son of God, who you know would basically be considered like a deity to be worshipped. And again, so basically showing like, there's no there's no power there. And also, within Egyptian culture, firstborns are considered sacred. And they're all dedicated to the sun god, Ra. And Ra is actually known as the preserver of the firstborn. You know, if you're to worship him, he's going to preserve your firstborn. Anyways, and if so, if, as God is doing this, he's, he's enacting that spiritual warfare, saying, you know, your gods are fake. They have no power. You should be worshiping and following me. I'm your only hope. And just to really soften the blow and the whole kids dying thing, uh, if you look at it from this perspective of thinking that God is actually rescuing these kids. So rather than let them live a life where they're going to grow up and be super corrupt like their parents and be in all sorts of evil and sin, God is essentially taking them straight to heaven. That you know, And, and he'll be their parent and they get to grow up in paradise. So there's a long-held biblical teaching, um, you know, based on various Bible stories that, you know, babies and young children, when they die, uh, just an act of mercy, they get to go straight to heaven. Uh, just because, you know, they don't really know the difference between right and wrong yet. 
So again, so in that story, we think, oh, God's killing kids. He's actually rescuing them. Uh, we don't actually die when we die physically. We just move to the spiritual realm. And so God's just taking them uh, there and he's giving them, um, you know, this, this life in paradise that they wouldn't have likely achieved had they lived their regular life here on earth. So it is a beautiful act of mercy, really. It's uh, quite a wild concept there. So anyways, when God's doing all of this, and his purpose in it is to show, you know, that he's the true God. Is he successful in that? Is he successful in embarrassing the Egyptian gods and their culture and showing that it's he who should be worshipped and he who should be followed because their gods don't exist? Yeah, he was very successful in that. The Israelites got to see this immense power of God introduced to him in a really amazing and incredible way. And honestly, they were just getting started. You know, God was, uh, throughout the Bible, continues to show his amazing power. And here's something really wild. In Exodus 13, 38, we see that even some Egyptians chose to leave Egypt and go with the Israelites. So God had even converted some Egyptians to, you know, lay down that false religion and forsake that false, the, their false God and run, run away from Pharaoh, who was supposedly a God in his own right, and, you know, to run away with these, their former slaves, essentially. So the final part of the sermon here is just to give you some keys of how you interpret scripture. And this is going to especially help you when you're working through like Genesis through Joshua. So first things first here. God's ideal is to be, you know, for us to be in perfect unity with him and with each other in paradise. That's what God's plan is. That's what his will is. That's what he's trying to lead us towards. Uh, we see this in the New Testament, John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to steal and destroy, to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says his plan, you know, why he came here was to give us life abundantly, to give us an abundant life versus the enemy. His life uh, that he's going to give you is just, you know, going to be you know, death and destruction. God wants us to have this ideal, amazing life in paradise, in heaven with him. Number two, God meets us in our sin and he brings us towards this ideal of perfection, this paradise, this perfection of unity uh, with him step by step. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God loves us so much. He's not going to leave us in our sin. He's going to meet us in the middle of our imperfection and he's going to lead us towards perfection, to be, towards being made right with God. And you're going to see that all throughout scripture. You know, there's all sorts of wicked stuff that's described in scripture, um, even gross behavior. And it's not there to say that God is, you know, approving of that. It's basically really just there to show you how amazing and loving God is that he would still show up and help. You know, humanity that's that messed up. And, you know, he's there to bring us step by step closer to him, to bring us back to this paradise with him, you know, uh, for all of eternity. He wants to redeem us and ultimately all of creation. We also see that step by step process in the laws that God gave the Israelites after they escaped Egypt. God had to form a new culture um, to this new nation. And in Matthew 19.8, Jesus says that concessions were made in the law because, you know, these people had really hard hearts. And, you know, Jesus says, you know, this wasn't how it was in the beginning. You know, concessions had to be made for these people. They were so messed up. 
in the beginning, in God's paradise, in the Garden of Eden. This isn't God's ideal, but concessions had to be made. That's why you see he didn't, uh, in the Old Testament, you don't see the eradication of slavery. Or you don't see that, you know, women are treated uh, as equal to men. But if you follow throughout all of Scripture, you see that um, how God is, you know, basically bringing this moral improvement to the point in the New Testament where we're to see each other all as children of God. And it's just, uh, honestly, that's this amazing progression that, that God is doing to kind of heal society and, you know, change it towards his version of morality and, uh, to, you know, to be truly uh, ethical in, in God's sight. Thirdly here, the law system that was given in the Old Testament was always meant to be temporary. So this is actually mentioned many different times throughout Scripture that a new covenant would be coming and was needed. Uh, in fact, um, Paul in the New Testament, in Galatians, he talks about that this um, this 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 law was essentially kind of like our schoolmaster, our guardian, or our tutor, as you'll see here. This is uh, Galatians three twenty three through twenty five. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So basically saying when Jesus came, we didn't need that all those old laws anymore, that we didn't need that same structure. So fourthly, a big theme of all of the laws that are in the New Testament is actually to teach people to rely on God, even if it seems strange, even if it makes you stand out from those around you. He's basically trying to teach them to trust him and, you know, to do things his way rather than the world's. And that's why, you know, there's some really weird rules that the Israelites had to follow in the Old Testament. And again, God's trying to make them being used to being different, something we still need to be comfortable with today, not looking to fit into the world. And there's all sorts of things we do that look like they're super weird to the world, but we have to be okay with that because we know that God's ways are better than the world's ways. Here's an example of one of those um, old laws, and people actually often mock this today and saying, you know, why don't you follow this still? Leviticus 19.19 says this, Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. So again, um, all sorts of us, you know, are wearing clothing today made of two kinds of material. So what this law is, is back in the time of the Israelites, uh, you know, they had, they had to wear something that was not mixed fabric. And that was simply like an illustration that God had given them, a continual reminder, because they didn't have the Bible yet, um, you know, that they weren't to mix with the world, that you can't easily mix two things that are completely different. Um, anyway, so... It, you know, today that's still a principle that we need to follow. Uh, and that's kind of a, the ultimate premise of this message, that we can't take these worldly ideas and critiques and interpretations of the Bible and just mesh them, you know, with Christianity and think it's all totally fine. Fifthly, uh, another big principle that will help you understand uh, throughout the Old Testament and really the Bible in general is that God cannot allow unchecked evil. And he will prune it back for the sake of all creation, for the good of all creation, to save humanity when need be. And again, you will always see that he will give, uh, or you can assume that he's often given this ample warning and time to turn to him, because it's ultimately God's goal to get everyone to turn to him. So in these even extreme measures he takes, that's still ultimately his goal, to get people to turn to him so he can save them. 
Again, you're going to see this actually plow, uh, play out in the book of Jonah. It's, you know, uh, somewhat a similar story to Sodom and Gomorrah of a very, very terrible city. Um, or all sorts of evil is going on and people are crying out and saying, God, you need to do something about these people. Please help us. And so God sends a prophet and says, I want you to preach to them. I want you to let them know who I am um, and, and, you know, to repent and turn to me. And then was saying, you know, if they don't, then I will be forced, uh, you know, for the good of humanity to destroy their city and, and, you know, bring judgment on them. And actually in this case, we have this super evil city that turns to God and repents uh, so much so that it completely stuns the prophet of God. Uh, surprised that, that that happened. But anyway, so we can assume, uh, as it's you know, shown many times throughout Scripture, that that's what God's always doing. He has to step up and deal with evil, but he's fair about it at the same time. Um, and then we have sixth here. Another big principle is that God wants the best for us, and he knows that being with him is the best thing for us. See, he, God knows that, you know, without him, we're going to hurt each other. We're going to follow false gods that aren't even real or false teachings. So he knows that being with him brings the ultimate good to our lives. And so he's going to fight for that. And he's going to try to do whatever he can to woo us to come to him. So, because he wants the best for us. You know, he's a loving parent, just like any parent would want the best for their child. That's what he's doing. He's, he's, he wants us to come within his loving boundaries because he knows within that there's freedom. And he knows that sin and rebellion is just like this corrosive acid that's going to destroy everything that it touches. It's attractive, but it's poisonous. It's going to mess you up. And so that's why we see continually throughout Scripture God being you know, full of anguish and dismay when his people are you know, following these false gods and getting into all sorts of terrible evil and all sorts of hurt that's going on. And the Bible describes God as being jealous for our hearts. Exodus 34, 14 says this, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Oprah says she was turned off of Christianity when she found out that God is jealous. Bill Maher, he said that, you know, a jealous God is not moral. So first things first here, do not get your theology from a talk show host especially those that can't be bothered to crack open a dictionary and look up a word. So jealousy has both a positive connotation and a negative connotation, positive and negative meanings. And, you know, you know, being petty and coveting something that somebody else has, that's wrong. That's bad. That's bad news. But, you know, passionately guarding what's precious to you and having a concern for like the life of those that you love and you know that you you really desperately desire you know things to go well for them and that's a normal outflowing of love that's what god's jealousy is it's a normal outflowing of love where he has this deep concern for our well-being i hope my message today is kind of showing you that you know that the god that's in the Old Testament, same, same God that's in the New Testament. God is amazingly loving and patient uh, throughout. And, you know, he's a God of justice. And yes, it's sometimes very hard to understand parts of the Old Testament because it's such a wildly different context, you know, than what's going on today. Um, we don't live in the early stages of humanity when they're like, you know, quite barbaric. Uh, we have thousands of years of moral improvement. Um, 
We have, you know, we're thousands of years down the line of God's plan and action to redeem humanity, to bring them, uh, you know, closer and closer to you. We have, you know, the teachings of Jesus. We have the Bible. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about people having a chronological snobbery, uh, you know, and we're looking back in time and judging people according to, you know, the standard of today when, you know, the people way back then kind of didn't know any better. But again, what you're seeing there and, you know, this very barbaric, rough, crude, early humanity is that God is willing to step into the middle of that mess and lovingly bring those people step by step by step toward him. He wants the redemption. He wants all of humanity to live in paradise with him. So I just want to end in prayer here uh, this morning. Dear God, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you, God, that we can study this for, you know, all the decades of our life and it still just becomes new to us and, you know, new things jump out. You can continue to speak through your word, your divine word that's infused with the Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that uh, the word would just become more and more alive to these beautiful people within our congregation and uh, those that are hearing this message God, and they're able, they're going to be able to see, you know, your amazing love and your character just to shine through the pages, uh, like never before. And God, I pray that, uh, various aspects of this message will just kind of stick within their soul. That in these conversations they have with people that, you know, when they're critiquing and, uh, the Bible and trying to, you know, put it down and discredit it, they'll be able to kind of, uh, you know, lovingly and gently, uh, bring correction and context and help them kind of understand what's going on. And God, I pray you're going to keep your people safe and that they'd have an amazing May long weekend and find something fun to do out there. In your name we pray, amen.